Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. If you're looking at it in your Bible and, uh, you know, the editors of whatever Bible, whatever publisher, they'll a lot of times put little uh, little headings over a paragraph. And so mine says, personal greetings, okay? So this may be the first sermon you've ever heard on how to say hello, okay? So hopefully it's more than that. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to take a look at Romans chapter 16. So if you would stand with me, and I'm going to read uh, these 16 verses. And by the way, there are around 24, 25 personal addresses here, personal names, and then uh, three or four household addresses or household names. And then there's some cities and things. And I may pronounce them differently than you would, okay? Now, in the case that I pronounce them differently than you pronounce them, please feel completely sure that your way is right, okay? My, my theory on uh, biblical names that are no longer in existence is you should just be confident. Like, just, like if you're in small groups, just say them however you want to say them, but act like that you know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, nobody else can really refute that, okay? Uh, I looked a couple of them up in Greek, and a couple of them are so hard to say in Greek, I thought, nah, I'm just going to say them how I would say them in American. So anyway, in American, in English, in America. Here we go. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Greet my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asinicritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogeus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus. And by the way, uh, if you're pregnant here today, or if you're thinking about having a baby, um, there's some great options here for names. And you could say that it happened at church at Lincoln Avenue where God hit you that your little baby used to be called Fledgeon or something like that. So. And all the saints who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Father, we thank you for this great book of Romans. We thank you, Father, for what we have seen and understood about sin and about justification and about sanctification and redemption and adoption and glorification and resurrection and living out the Christian life. Thank you, Jesus. God, help us to not only believe but to embody, to live out these truths. May they be in us as they were in these people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
So much more than Paul saying hello to his friends, what we have here in the last chapter of the book of Romans is really a real-life picture of real-life people who embody the doctrines of this book. Okay, so cool thing here, all right? So, so as we look at Phoebe and, and Rufus and uh, Mary and, 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 and all these people in this book, what we are seeing is snapshots of people who live out the rest of the book of Romans. So we, we learned in the first three chapters of Romans that all men are sinners. Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is, is death. Romans 6.23, we learned in Romans 1.23 that every person alive has started out their life saying, I don't want God. I don't want him. I'm not interested in him. He's not appealing to me. I want everything else. Okay, that's what we learned about sin in the book of Romans. What we are seeing is people in the first century who embrace those truths. They, 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 they believe that about themselves. Okay, everybody else in their world was trying to be right with a God by good works. Okay, and what we find in the book of Romans is people who were converted. In Romans 16, these are people who, whose lives were changed, who received a new identity. I, I love like verse 5. It talks about this guy, uh, Apinitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. I mean, the first guy in, in Asia to actually come to deal with his own sin and to see that Christ was the answer. We, we know the name of the guy. These people were converted. What we have here is snapshots of people who embraced the doctrine of justification by faith. That was a, a brand new thing to the world that Paul lived in. The reality that you could be justified, not, 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 by, not, not by doing good things and, and working your way up, but you could be justified by believing in the life and death of Jesus Christ. It's called justification by faith. In, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, we learned that just like Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God's righteousness was put into his account. That's what happened to these people. They believed and they became righteous. We find snapshots of people who have embraced their union with Christ that we find in Romans 6. That, that if, if you're a believer and you're joined to Jesus, then the old you is dead. And the new you has come alive and you're dead to sin and alive to God. And you're living Christ's resurrection life. These people that are mentioned here embodied that truth. These people were, were people who celebrated and delighted in Romans chapter 8. That we can be indwelt with the Spirit of God. That every born again believer is joined to Jesus and filled with the Spirit of God. And so they are adopted in the family of God. They're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. They're headed to the new heavens and the new earth. And that nothing, this is what Romans 8 taught us, nothing, nothing, nothing in all the universe, no power, no demon, no trial, no persecution, no threat, no danger can separate them from the love of Christ. Part of that is why they lived the way that we're going to talk about that they lived. These are snapshots of people who embrace Romans 12. That if, if you believe the mercies of God in Romans 1 through 11, then you know what you do? You offer your life as a living sacrifice. Like, like, that's not just words on a page in Romans 12. That's a real-life person in Romans 16. That's Phoebe. That's Aquila. That's Priscilla. They literally, they said, man, I believe. I, I am in on justification by faith. I'm in on, I'm joined to Jesus. I, I believe Romans 8, that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I believe that I'm a joint heir with Christ. And so I am, Romans 12, offering my life as a living sacrifice. 
These are the people who were changed by the doctrines that we just read about for the last year in this book. And so, as we close this up, this book of Romans, one of the questions we got to ask ourselves is, if you've been here for the last year, I can't imagine a, a greater tragedy than for you to have soaked up these eternity-transforming truths for the last year and not be different. We want to be different. We want to be like Christ, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these people and look at some of their characteristics. Now, there's a bunch of stuff here, okay? There's a bunch of people here. And so instead of having a 21-point sermon, what I decided on is I'm going to group them to my favorite three, okay? So what you're going to get is my favorite three things that we see in the lives of these people in Romans chapter 16, people who were deeply impacted by the doctrines that Paul wrote. Okay, so number one, okay? Number one, these are people, and man, this is, you're you're not gonna be surprised, okay? Prepare to not be surprised, ready? These are people who are connected in vital, what do you think I'm gonna say? Christ-centered relationships, right? First time you ever heard that, right? These are people connected in vital Christ-centered relationships. Now, I want you to marvel at this. Paul has never been to Rome. He's never been there, right? He's never been there. Where have you never been? I've never been to, um, where have I never been? I've never been to Seattle, okay? I've never been to Seattle. Paul's never been to Rome, okay? But in this 16 verses, Paul lists 24, 25, I can't remember which, is 24, 25 people by name, okay, that he is vitally connected to in a close friendship, and he's never been to Rome. Paul lists the household of three or four other families and the churches that meets there, and he's never been to Rome. Paul's never been there. You know, now what that means is, is that Paul has met them in other places around the world, maybe Ephesus, maybe Thessalonica, maybe uh, Antioch, maybe Jerusalem, and he has so quickly built a deep friendship and relationship with them that he has kept up with them. He knows where they moved to and when they moved and that they're living in Rome right now, and so he sends his greeting to them. And he does all this in a world, please don't fall over that has no Facebook, okay? Paul doesn't have Facebook. He doesn't have the opportunity to keep up with these people via the internet. He doesn't have texting plan. He doesn't have a telephone. What does that mean? That means that Paul was deeply committed to Christ-centered friendships, all right? There are people, I would say this, I'll bet you anything, I'll bet you there anything, there are people in a, in a church today in Woodward, Oklahoma, some church, not here for sure, but some church in Woodward, Oklahoma, who could not name 25 people in their own church, okay? I, I believe that. I, I know that. You know how I know that's true? Is, is In our benevolence interviews, we'll always ask, are you connected with the church? Are you part of a church? Oh, yes, I go to, and then I love this, ah, it's that church, um, it's over there uh, across from the high school, or it's the one by Walgreens, you know, or it's, I just, I just for some reason can't remember the name of it right now, and so I'll usually help them out. Oh, you're talking about that First United Methodist or First Christian or Elm Street or Crown Heights or whatever, and then my next question is always the real kicker. Yeah, and, and t- what's the pastor's name there? I like to ask that one. What's the pastor's name? They never know, you know. They don't even know the pastor's name. Paul knows personally a relationship with 25 people in a city he's never been to. By the way, this is for you. My name is Jason, okay? 
Pastor Daniel is back in with the kids, okay? He was in earlier, okay? Pastor Gary and Pastor, uh, this is Jeff, okay? All right. So anyway, just help you out. I want Jason, Jason, Jason. All right. So Paul, Paul, Paul knows people. Now, now why, why does Paul know people that way? I can answer that. That's the great thing about going through a whole book. Why, why does Paul know people in this way? Well, in Romans chapter 1, he tells us his strategy, okay? When Paul walks into a building like this with other believers, this is what he does, okay? Now, now, now oftentimes when you walk into a building like this with other believers, you know what your strategy is? Keep the head low, slide in, right? As soon as he says amen, get the stuff, have your Bible zipped up, out the door, right? First to the restaurant, beat the line. Paul's strategy. It's very different, okay? You ready? Romans 1, 11, and 12, he tells us. He says, for I long to see you. I can't wait to be with you. That's what he's saying. I can't wait to spend time with you. I can't wait to get together with you. Let's plan it. Let's, let's put it on the calendar. I long to see you. Why? Then I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul says, I can't wait to be with you so that I can build up your faith. Man, I want to pray with you. I want to share truth with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to go golf with you. I want to, I want to go to McDonald's and share a biscuit with you. I want to, I want to take a walk. I want, to, I, want us to, I want us to gather together and I want us to be together. And my purpose is to build you up, to strengthen you spiritually. Verse 12, that is what we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That is Paul's strategy. And so wherever Paul goes in the world, when, he, when he's in Corinth for six months, you know what he works really hard at? Knowing people, meeting them, getting to know them, spending time with them, learning all about their life, speaking truth into their life, figuring out what they need and what would help them spiritually and how he can pray for them and, and how he can build them up and how he can train them and how he can take them out and help them build make disciples. And so when he's in Corinth, he's doing that, doing that, doing that, doing it. When he's in Thessalonica, he's doing that, doing that. I mean, he's all over the world. And so... By doing that, he's able to say, oh, yeah, Rome. I've never been there, but I know Priscilla and Aquila and, and Phoebe and, and all those other names, you know? Mary, Rufus. I'm trying to figure out the easy ones. Yeah, I know those guys. I know. You know why he knows them? Because he intended to. Not only does he know them, they are his family. Verse 1, our sister Phoebe. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsman. You know what a kinsman is? My relative. Are they really Paul's relatives? Biological? No. Spiritual. Verse 11, my kinsman Herodian. Verse 13, Rufus' mother, who's been a mother to me. Is that possible? Is it possible to go to a church and to, and to build such a close relationship with an older lady that she becomes like a mother, like a grandmother to you? Yeah. Winnie Tennant was exactly that in our life. If I, if I were writing to somebody and describing Winnie, I would have said, she's Winnie Tennant. She's a little cranky. She, you know, she says her mind. And she's been like a mother to us. Paul says that. He'd never been there. This guy was not ducking in this house watching Netflix. I can just guarantee you, he was not doing that. He had no time to do that. He was busting it out, building relationships. Spiritual family. 
Romans 8 told us that if we're joined to Jesus, we're adopted in the family of God. Romans 8, 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. These folks are living that out. I mean, it's one thing to read Romans 8 and say, yep, if you're a believer, you're adopted in the family of God. It's another thing to invest so heavily in the people in your church that they are like family to you. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what these folks are doing. He has a deep affection for them. Verse 5. My beloved, Eponidas. Verse 9, my beloved, Stachys. What, what does my beloved mean? It means the, the guy I love. Man, th- these are family, deep affection relationships. Again, this is nothing that's not something we haven't already learned, right? Remember Romans 12, verse 10? Here's the command, Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. And now in chapter 16, you see people who are doing that. In other words, Romans was not just a cool letter to read. They were living it out. They they were actually doing that. These were relationships. Man, I love this point, by the way. These were relationships that were rooted in the camaraderie of mission. All right, now, if you're here today and you're like, man, I've heard this from him over and over again. I just, I can't. I don't, I don't understand why, but I can't get it. I can't. Okay, here, this may be the missing key for you, okay? These are relationships rooted in the camaraderie of mission. So when you read these, notice verse 7. Paul says, my fellow prisoner. Verse 3, verse 9, both those. He says, my fellow workers. What, what does that mean when you have someone who's your fellow prisoner, your fellow worker? What does that mean? That means they are with you in it, Right? Right? They're, 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 doing, they're going through the same thing you are. They're on the same track you are. They're in the same battle you are. They're in the same struggle you are. They're in the same job you are. In other words, what Paul is saying is, these folks are on mission with me. Paul is saying, I am striving with everything I've got to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and these folks are with me in the battle. They are side by side. They're carrying each other's loads. They're enduring trials together. They, they're with one another. I read a, a book over vacation. Um, it's called Fearless. Um, it's kind of a Christian book, maybe. Uh, yeah, it's a Christian story, so I guess so. But, but it's, it's about uh, SEAL Team 6. And a guy on SEAL Team 6, his name is Adam Brown, and it's his story. It's, it's from childhood till his death. And um, he, he lost his way early in kind of adolescence and uh, became a drug addict. And by the way, if, if, you, if you are a family that has a drug addict in your home, man, I... It was just so, um, so cutting to see what his mom and dad and his brothers and sisters endured just in, in having someone just fall apart in front of you, self-destruct over and over and over and over again. But, but this guy gets saved. He, he's born again, and, 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 he, and he, through God's providence, gets in the Navy SEALs. And you know what he finds there? He finds there a brotherhood. That, that really is part of his being okay, okay? Because here, here's what the book points out, that when you go to war with somebody, it does not matter if you're different from them or they're from Arkansas and you're from California or they're a, they like rock music and you like country. Or Listen, when you're at war with somebody, none of that matters. You develop a bond that is forever. That is, I mean, part of, the, part of the cool part of the story was his funeral, and all the men that, that sacrificed greatly to come across the country and honor him. You know why? Because they served together. 
All right, you know why Paul's able to make these connections? It's because they served side by side in the work, the risky work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And and here's what you find. You find that when people don't have that fellowship, I've, uh, I, I've talked to folks before that have tried out our church and they'll, they'll end up not going or being somewhere else and, and I'll end up like talking to them at the grocery store or whatever and I'll say, you know, I, I saw you came and, and thanks for coming, but you know, you, you haven't come in a while and they're like, well, we never made any connections. You know why? Now, this, could, this may not be the exact reason, but I bet more than not, the reason they did not make any connections is because they were not in the battle, okay? When you're in the trenches, when you're serving, Man, when you're, you're, you're in the trenches and teen kids and, you know, you come out of here shaking and, you know, you, you got PST, PTSD, you know, from working with the first and second grade boys, you develop a bond with people. When you're on a mission trip, people have always talked about how on mission trips they come back, relationships that they never had. You know why? Because they were in the trenches together. And that common ground binded them together. And so I would just say this, if you've not been able to connect, it's probably because you're not, you're not in the battle with us. And if all you're depending on, see, a friendship has to have some common ground, okay? So normally, so outside of the church, outside of Christ, so not, we're not talking about Christians, normally how does that happen? Well, you like OSU and they like OSU, right? So... Ah, you get along, right? You have something to talk about. You have something to you go do together, right? Or they like hunting and you like hunting. Or they like fishing and you like fishing. Or they like motorcycles and you like motorcycles. Or they like shopping and you like shopping. Or, or whatever, right? And, and, and so, so that, that's the way normally. Now, what, what is a Christ-centered friendship? It's just what it says, right? It's centered on Christ. And so, so you may be in this church and you may be the closest and deepest of friends and you like OSU and they like OU. Or they don't like football at all. They like ice capades or whatever, you know? And, and, and you like fishing and they're a member of PETA. You know, I don't know. But they're nothing like you. But, but you have this common ground of you're redeemed and they're redeemed. You're adopted in the family of God, they're adopted in the family of God. You've got forgiveness of your sins by Christ. They've got forgiveness of their sins by Christ. You have the future hope of, of, of the new heavens and the new earth. They have the future hope of the new heavens and the earth. You're sanctified by the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're sanctified by the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're on mission in the world. They're on mission in the world. You're desperately trying to get your teenage children to trust Christ in a very hostile environment. They're desperately trying to get their teenage children to trust Christ in a hostile environment. You're desperately trying to get your seven-year-old to understand the gospel. They're trying to desperately get their seven-year-old to understand the gospel. You've got all kinds of things to talk about. You've got all kinds of things to pray about. You've got all kinds of things to do together. They're trying to reach their neighbors for Christ. You're reaching your neighbors for Christ. And so when you come together in your small group, you got all kinds of things to talk about. Man, I'll tell you what, small group comes alive when people are on mission, okay? But when they're not on mission, when you come together in your small group, you go, guys, how was your week? And everybody's just thinking, well, I went to work and I had donuts one morning. That was nice. What else? Took the dog to the groomer. That's, that's boring. When you come to your small group and you're like, well, I did it. Man, I, I walked across the street 
And I knocked on the door and, you know, and man, it went better than I thought. And, you know, I, 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 I couldn't hardly get it out, you know, but I struck up a conversation and, and you know, I, and I finally just had the courage to say, man, I know you're hurting in your life and I know your family's really struggling and I just want to share with you a verse. And, and man, they were so happy I was there. You know, and the other person's like, oh, man, it's almost the same thing happened to me this week. You know, I was at work, and, and I got a coworkers going through cancer. And, man, I've just really hurt for them. I've been praying for them. And, you know, man, now, now things are alive. But before when it's, man, I'm telling you, I'm just not interested in your dog going to the groomer. I, I, I'm sorry, you know, I'm just not. I don't even like my dog, you know. And, and so I know some people would be interested in that, but I'm not. I, I'll. I'll listen to you and I'll be polite, but the camaraderie of mission, that's where it's at. Number two, these snapshots show us people who are workers, servants, workers. Starts out, Phoebe. What do we know about Phoebe? She's a sister, right? She's a believer. I commend you our sister Phoebe a servant of the church at Sincre. Man, she is characterized. She's known as a servant. The word is deacon. It's the word deacon, actually. In the Greek, it's diakonos. Phoebe, that's who she is. Man, she's a servant of the church. Paul says, welcome her in the Lord. We believe that Phoebe is the one who's carrying the letter to Rome. She's probably living in Corinth at the time. She's probably a wealthy businesswoman. And Paul is wrapping up the letter to the Romans and he's, he's folding it up and he's giving it to Phoebe. And he says, hey, Phoebe, I mentioned you in there. I told them to welcome you. And he's sending her to Rome. He says, help her in whatever way she may need from you for she has been a patron of many that that's a word that means she's helped lots of struggling people man it's just cool to me that that's what phoebe's known for that when paul is describing phoebe he's like man she's a sister she's a servant of the lord and she's a patron of many this gal she she is always building up and helping other people let me ask you how would people describe you i see you out the soccer fields i was out there yesterday and this happens a lot you know Somebody's across the way, and they're, they're with somebody on their team, and they're talking about their church, and they mention your name, and the person's like, I don't know that person. Who are they? How would I know them? And so they describe you. How would they describe you? What would they say about you? What would they say? Would it just be like, oh, you know, he's a big guy, drives a motorcycle, has a big beard, or she has poofy hair, always all blinged up. She's always on Facebook, you know? I mean, she's constantly on Facebook. Is that what they'd say about you? Where they say, well, he's really loud, man. You always, yeah, you don't know who that is, man. Listen, just listen. You know, is that what they'd say? She always has a scowl. She's kind of snippy. She's always dragging all her kids around. What would they say about you? How would they describe you? Phoebe, she is always serving. She is constantly serving. She is constantly building people up. She is constantly taking people in. She is constantly taking care of people. It's that lady. Listen to these guys. Verse three, Prisca and Aquila. They're described as fellow, listen, workers, workers. Verse six, Mary, who's she? She has worked hard for you. Verse nine, Urbanus, who's he? A fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, sisters, we think. Trophina and Trophosa, workers in the Lord. Verse 12, who's Persis? Well, he's, he's the one who's worked hard in the Lord. 
No, did you notice that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven people out of 25 that Paul describes particularly as workers. Workers. Why would he say that? You know why he would say that? Because there's something in the gospel that is preached in Romans that makes people work hard. That's what he's saying. They're characterized by that. Romans 12, 11. I can prove it to you. Romans 12, 11. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. The word fervent means to be ablaze. Be on fire for Jesus and serve him. Work for him. Now, what's he talking about there? Just being a hard worker at, at your job? Well, that's part of it. Man, remember when we read through the book of Proverbs this summer? How often did the sluggard come up? Over and over and over again, right? Be a person who takes care of business. Be a person who gets things done. Be a person who's dependable, who can be counted on. Be that kind of person. And in fact, I can prove to you that Paul would include that because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says it. Um, Start reading in verse 7 here. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. He's saying, be like us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. So obviously Paul would, would include that, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about a particular kind of work because you, did you notice the phrase that comes after the phrase worker often? He says, worker in the Lord. She worked hard in the Lord. You know, what does that mean to work hard in the Lord? It means to work hard in Jesus' work. Did you know that Jesus has work? Absolutely. He is at work building a kingdom of people who will reign, a church who will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, when he was on earth, he described his own work. In John 4, 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, God, and to accomplish his work. John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And so he's talking about gospel labor. He's talking about sweat and effort and time and energy and organizing and recruiting and meeting needs. He's talking about praying for and praying with and speaking truth and teaching and training and hosting and hospitality, visiting, checking in on, connecting with, sharing God's story, counseling, comforting, feeding, supporting, sacrificing labor for the Lord and for his kingdom. And what we see here are people who've embraced the truths of the book of Romans. And you know what that's made them? That's made them people who busted out for the kingdom, who work hard for the glory of God in the work of ministry, in the work of the gospel, in the work of relationships. That's what, that's what, it, that's what it's made these people. Now, 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 why should we do that? 1 Corinthians 15. I'm trying to let Paul answer all these questions by his own words. Why why would he commend their work, their labor in the gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Two two reasons in 1 Corinthians. First one's in verse 10. Verse 10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, let's, let's stop there. Paul is saying, God's poured his grace in me. What's God's grace? It's his riches. It's his power. It's his mercy. It's his work. He's saying, God's poured his grace in me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Okay, so so Paul says, what God put in me was not in vain. 
You see, you, you see what is implied there? There's stuff coming out of him, right? Like, like if, you, if you spend a year teaching a young man the correct way to shoot a basketball, and you spend hours and hours and hours and days and days and days and evenings till dark teaching him how to shoot that basketball, the proper form. He's over and over and over and over. And he gets into his first game, and he gets past the ball, and he spreads his legs out real wide, and he goes like this. It was all in vain, wasn't it? Right? I mean, it's, unless he made it. Yeah, maybe he makes it. <laughs> But your effort was in vain because he didn't do anything you said. Okay, Paul is saying, my God's grace in me was not in vain. Okay, now, now keep reading. Verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. You see that? I, I worked harder than... The grace not being in vain is the fact that Paul worked hard for the gospel. Not, not, not worked in the sense of you got to earn it, like you got to pay God back, you can't ever do that. But, but it's what God put in him. He, he, was, he was doing it. Right? Second reason. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Same chapter, later on. Last verse in the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Listen to this. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Man, I tell you what, one of the beautiful things about that verse right there is that we can know for certain that what we do for Jesus is never in vain. That that person I told you about who had third and fourth grade boys and team kid and Man, they, they studied and they had a lesson prepared and they had a gospel message to share and they got in there and, man, the kids were moving so fast they couldn't even track them, you know? They were holding one with one foot and another with a hand and they were trying to speak truth and had all kinds of problems and the night was really, you know, chaotic. They can leave here knowing it's not in vain. God will use that. Some of you were those kids, and God used it, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. You can't say that about anything else. Everything else in life, your labor may be in vain. I don't know much about trees. There, there aren't any trees in western Kansas, so I don't know much about trees. That's where I grew up. But I've got, I think they're elm, possibly. But they're unique. I've got three unique trees in my front yard. Because in the fall, they don't shed their leaves. They shed whole branches, okay? So... <laughs> And they're not, they're not big branches. They're, for real, this is, this is an interesting phenomenon. They're all, all of them are between this size and probably this size. But, but they're, they're not any bigger. They're not any smaller. They're all, but they, I mean, they come down. Like, I've got a pile of them. Drive by my house, you'll see a pile. Anytime during the week, doesn't even matter when the trash guy comes, you will see a pile of them in front of that red, big red rock in, front, in our house. There's, there's a big pile of those branches. Because every morning, you know what I do? I go around and I, I pick all of them up. They're in the neighbor's yard. They're in the street. They're in a, across the street. They're every, I, try to, I know it's my tree, so I try to gather them all up and I make them a pile there. But here's the deal. When I finish and I'm like, ah, I look down and there's more, right? No joke, no joke. I've been hit in the head while I was picking them up, right? Like I'm picking the branches up, and they're, they're, that's, they're coming off. And then I come home at night, looks like I've done nothing. 
A lot of our labor in this world is like that. Man, I remember growing up as a kid, I remember farming, you know, in May and June, getting the soil prepared, going through the stubble field, disking it up, you know, taking the sweeps through it in June and July and August, going in there with the drill in September, drilling that wheat, waiting all year long, getting a good stand of wheat. Come first of June, a hailstorm comes in and mows it down. We don't even go in with a combine. Like everything we did bared nothing. That's just the way it is sometimes. Not in Jesus. Isn't that cool? Not in Jesus. Some of you are not listening to the word that I'm saying. You are so, you're thinking about something completely different. You know, it doesn't matter. Here's my promise. My promise from this book is that my efforts in Romans 16 will not be in vain. Somebody, someone in here, it's, it's, the Spirit of God's going to use it to grab hold of you. It doesn't matter how bad I flub it up, okay? My efforts for Christ will not be in vain. That's a cool word from the Lord. Number three, these are snapshots of people who are risk takers for the work of Christ. Look at verse three and four. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. At some point in Prisca and Aquila's friendship with Paul, he was in trouble. That's kind of a funny statement because Paul was in trouble all the time, wasn't he? I mean, man, when you, when you read the list of his trials in 2 Corinthians 11, let me, let, me, let me read you a portion of that. With far greater labors, this is verse 23, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from the false brethren and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst and often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there's a constant daily pressure on me of my anxieties for all the churches. Man, Paul is always in distress, okay? And at some point... Priscilla and Aquila, by the way, Acts refers to her as Priscilla. That's why I'm saying that. But in in Romans, it's Prisca. However you want to say it again, doesn't matter. Okay? This couple, this husband and wife team are there, and Paul's in trouble, and they compromise their security, their safety, their well-being in order to meet Paul's needs. Now, guys, I want you to put that in perspective. Aquila is a husband who put his wife at risk, her life. Their income, their possessions, their very safety for the sake of the gospel. When you think about most of our ministry, most of it doesn't really cost that much, does it? A little time, an evening, cost of a meal, a little extra house cleaning, get up early, for meet someone for breakfast, some emotional strain maybe, time in prayer. Verse 4 says they risked their necks. This husband put his wife's life in jeopardy. This wife put her husband's life in jeopardy for Paul. For Paul who would just get himself in another fix in the next town. 
Americans put a really high value on security, don't we? Nothing wrong with that, but it's just true. We do. How do I know that? Well, we buy insurance on everything, right? We buckle our seatbelts. We wear our helmets. We get in a tornado shelter. We stick with what's familiar. We wear life jackets. We put batteries in smoke detectors. We lock our doors. On and on and on and on and on, right? Why? Safety. Security. So we don't lose. Okay, Aquila and Priscilla exposed all of that. They were willing to lose all of that for the sake of the gospel. To help a brother in the gospel. And Paul commends them. Do you notice this? He says, who risked their necks for my life? To whom not only I give thanks, but he says, all the church of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, not all risk is godly, okay? So if you're kind of a risk taker guy, don't go out of here and tell your family, see, I told you, this year on vacation, we're going to get shot out of a cannon. We're going to swim with sharks. We're going to take a stroll on the edge of a skyscraper. We're going to get a tiger as a pet, and we're going to go base jumping, okay? Don't. Some of that's just dumb, okay? It's just dumb. We, we were up on a precipice a couple weeks ago, had a thousand foot drop on either side. At, at the top, it was only about maybe 15 feet wide. And there was kind of an outcropping rock that came up right on the edge. And there's this, I don't know, he looked like about 19, 20 year old guy. And he's up there and he's got his friend with him. And he's up there on that rock and he's on one foot and he's doing these little jumps, you know. This is a deal where like if he stumbles, he's a dead man. Like it's not like, no, you're dead. I mean, you don't survive that. I did not get up there and say, Em, take my picture. <laughs> Let me tell you why. It's not worth it to me. It's not worth it, okay? Some risks are not worth it. Now, it's, I know it's an individual decision, but it wasn't worth it to me. Okay, now, now here's the deal about the gospel. Christians will lose income, property, health, and even their like life. For the sake of the gospel. Now notice I did not say they might. Now. Some Christians might not. Most of us have not. But what I'm telling you is. The Bible says. In order for the gospel go to the ends of the earth. People will lose all those things. It must happen. How do I know that? Revelation 6. Revelation 6.9. Is a picture of what's happening in heaven right now. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, those who had been murdered, for the word of God. These are martyrs. And for the witness they had borne. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Here's the answer, verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer. Listen, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What did God tell them? There's more coming. Sit tight. Ladies, gentlemen, martyrs, those who gave it all, sit tight. Because there's more coming. What's that mean? That means that in order for the gospel to go to Barachalam, India, and Orissa, India, and Chattisgarh, India, people are going to die. 
They already have. Three in our network. Three pastors that you guys helped, that we supported, that we went and trained and looked them in the eye and bought them Bibles and sent them out. And more will die. More will die in Indonesia. More will die in China. Maybe more will die here. I don't know. But what what I'm telling you is, the Bible doesn't say there might be risk. It says there is risk, real risk. But here's, here's what the Bible says. It's worth it. See, that's how you judge whether something's too risky or not. Is it worth it? It's not worth it for me to get up on that rock for a picture. It's not worth it. Is it worth it to risk for the gospel so that people might know who Jesus is? It is. Let's let Paul answer it. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's let Jesus answer it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. Paul is saying it's worth it. It's worth it to risk. We should not assume that every risk will turn out okay. It won't. James 4 tells us that. Remember James 4 where he says, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a place and spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Verse 14, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's true, isn't it? We don't know. That's why Esther, in the book of Esther, when she knew that the only way to save her people was to go before the king. And if you went before the king unannounced, you lost your life. But you remember what she said? If I perish, I perish. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wouldn't bow down to the idol. And when they were confronted, they said, well, king, our God can save us if he wants to. We don't know that he will. You hear that? We don't know that he will. But either way, we're not bowing down. In other words... It's worth the risk. That's what Romans is telling us. It's worth the risk. There will be ministries that you'll be called to, steps of obedience that God will lay on your heart that will not be guaranteed to be safe or without loss. Missions is not safe. Opening your home, opening your life, opening your checkbook is not without loss. Opening your mouth to speak the gospel is not without risk. Maybe the risk is just you'll lose friends or maybe you'll be ostracized or maybe you'll get fired or maybe, I don't know. But it's not without risk. But here's what the Bible is telling us. The risk is worth it. Because as Paul says in verse 20 of this chapter, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We know how this deal is going to end. You see, the risk only goes so far because we know how it's going to end. And so I would ask you today, how is the book of Romans in you? Is it in you in Christ-centered relationships? Are you pursuing that? Are you running hard? Are you working hard for the kingdom of God? And are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? Father, I pray that you'd make these things our own. God, that um, they would be so much a part of us that we would be characterized by them. That When people would describe us, they would describe us as people who who love others well, who pursue relationships, who 
who have family affection, who have brotherly love, who are workers and laborers and servants for the good of others, and who love you so much and are convinced so thoroughly that we're willing to risk for the kingdom. God, make that true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.